The Fool's Gallery presents Chapter 2, Part of the Stew, Part of the Crew, taken from the journals of Max Landau, year 148 DD, 35 days into our voyage. Today, I begin to take my duties as scribe of this expedition seriously. I must confess that due to the nightly appearance of a certain handsome ghost, I let my responsibilities go somewhat unattended. But the voyage is long, and though the shock of Michael's appearance forced me to put Quill to paper, I write now for a much baser reason. Boredom. We have been at sea for a little over five weeks, and I've yet to see anything but water. Our first destination was to be Lastport, a small island that holds the last known port in the world. It should have taken just four weeks to get there. Now, well into our fifth week, there is a murmuring amongst the crew that we missed the island entirely and are now adrift in the ocean. I think of the mythical creatures I hope to see, of the forbidden love I was sure to find and can't help but smile. I find myself hoping to be captured by pirates, maybe tortured in some creative way. At least that would break the unending emptiness of the ocean. The unending boredom. It is a feeling that is compounded by the growing fear in the crew that we will never see land again. No ship has ever returned from the endless ocean, this is true. But we all believed that was due to pirates, sea monsters, or other such marvelous adventures that songs are made of. It appears none of us entertain the idea that it was because this fabled ocean is simply empty. Nothing but water from our prow to eternity. I must admit, my hope of ever seeing land again has vanished. I know that we will sail on until our food and water stores are depleted, and I step off the boat to join Michael in the waves. No one will read this account. The only memory of us will be a cautionary tale of why you don't sail south. But until that time comes, I must entertain myself. So let us continue under the pretension that these pages are not destined for fish food, that they will be read in the Tower of Sawdust as esteemed works of academic value. What would be the first thing such scholars would like to know? A closer examination of the ship and crew, no doubt. Well, let me try to find the words for both. Let us first start with the ship. The Alabaster Queen, I'm sure, would appear quite impressive from a hundred paces, which I'm sure was the distance it was bought at. But for every step you take closer, it loses a bit of its luster. I have taken all the steps I need, and suffice to say, I know what will kill me on this journey. The wood is brown and rotting. The mass seems to bend off to one side when looked at too hard, and the ropes holding it all together seem to be more frayed than whole. If squinted upon, I suppose there is a certain character to the thing. A fact my friend Willis enumerated on at great length when he bought it. But none of Willis's optimism negates the fact that we set out on an impossible voyage in the worst possible ship we could find. And then there's the crew. You know how some people look like their pets? Well, some crews look like their ships. Back home, I once knew a man named Charlie Nurgle, who wiped his nose and his ass with the same handkerchief. I asked him about it once, and he nodded knowingly. He knew it was disgusting, but why waste a perfectly good handkerchief? I think Charlie would have liked it on the Queen. 
he would have fit in. Unlike Willis and I, we sit off to one side, technically members of the crew, but we may as well be ghosts in the water for all the attention we get. This seems to suit Willis fine, as he's been in an uncharacteristically dour mood for the entire voyage. Back on the mainland, Willis was the quickest to smile, laugh, or sing. Now he just stares off into nothing, a look of aloofness on his face that has not ingratiated himself, or me for that matter, with the crew. And this is a crew I would rather have for me than against. Where to begin? Where to begin? Why not with the main perpetrator of our misery? The assistant chef on board, a giant bald man with tattoos so densely packed into his body that it would be impossible to tell his original race. The first night of our voyage, he sat across from us during dinner and offered a bowl of meat stew. Only after I raised a spoonful of the stuff to my lips did he introduce himself. His name? Bob the Cannibal. I did not finish the meal. Neither did Willis, who snapped out of his trance just long enough to give the stew a disgusted look that Bob was sure not to miss. We've been living off bread and vegetables for weeks. Willis's once chubby cheeks are now sagging, and his face seems to be more dark circle than not. No doubt I look no better. I find myself during mealtime staring at the stew, my mouth watering, only Willis's judgmental gaze keeping me from sneaking a bite. We took our issue to the first mate, Niles Parbat. I did not even consider taking it to the captain. I believe she is the only other member of this crew not to have eaten the barbarian stew. Instead, she seems to exist solely on brandy, a diet of which keeps her in a similar state of disrepair as her ship. Mr. Parbat, however, seems to be a good man, tall and handsome, his straight back and impeccable manners revealing him for an ex-naval officer. I could see immediately why Willis hired him. He is everything Willis wishes he was, where the truth of the matter is my friend more directly resembles the captain. But Mr. Parbat laughed us off, saying with a friendly but firm tone to eat the damn stew. Defeated, we returned to the mess, Willis stubbornly staring into space, myself at the crew surrounding us. They all seem perfectly nonplussed with a cannibal serving them meat stew every night. In fact, they devoured their bowls with such gusto and lack of decorum that the floor was fed as much as they were. I must admit it did smell delicious. A fact I attribute to our head chef, Jenna, a squat, cheerful woman whose air of motherly tenderness is belayed by a large scar that snakes down across her nose and disappears somewhere underneath her rough-spun apron. She serves each of the crew by name, cheerfully inquiring about their health and how they are sleeping at night. Then she slips a bowl underneath me and with a malicious twinkle in her eye tells me to eat up. I tried to ignore her and instead snuck glances at Dawn, a woman of such terrifying beauty that not even her bald head and dead eyes could dissuade me from peeking, though I know I will never speak to her. There is a darkness about her that unnerves me as much as her beauty, an ominous feeling of dread that is only helped by the man she chooses to spend her meals with. Sitting across from Don is the helmsman, a cloaked man referred to only as Mr. Stiggs. I have never seen his face, as it is wrapped in a fabric so tightly around his head only his eyes are visible. But what eyes they are. They glow violet, and when he moves, they leave a trace of their color in the air. Sometimes, at night, before the captain relieves him, 
You can see those eyes floating above the wheel, following you wherever you go. Of all the crew, it is Mr. Stiggs that unnerves me the most. But at the very least, I've seen the man, unlike whoever sits in our crow's nest. I'm sure there is someone up there. What kind of ship doesn't have a barrel man? But I've never seen him, nor heard him. The only evidence I have that someone lives up there at all is during mealtimes, when a basket connected to a rope descends to deck and Jenna places a bowl of the stew in it. Even he, or she, or them for that matter, seems brave enough to gorge themselves on the cannibal's meat, for the basket is pulled up with what can only be described as excited haste, and then descends a scant ten minutes later, empty of all edible content. I thought the only person of any real sanity on board was Willis, but as stated before, my normally congenial friend has been standoffish and rude. Normally, trying to get Willis to worry is like trying to get the sun not to shine. The man is incurably optimistic. It's always been this way since we were children. I'm the one who worries, and Willis spends money until he feels better. It's a little game we play where only one of us seems to be having any fun. But it seems those positions have been reversed. Back home, I could rely on Willis to make friends for me. Everyone likes Willis. He is witty and handsome, and the fact that he's a fool never seems to matter. But on this ship, he seems to be the one dragging me down. After five weeks of malnutrition, I was close to breaking. I sat with Willis alone in the corner of the mess, my eyes gaunt, my skin pale. I watched the crew, Stiggs accepting a bowl from Jenna with a whispered thank you, Don raising the stew to her lips, slurping up every last drop of broth. I watched and I judged, too hungry, too miserable not to hate them. Didn't they know we would all be dead soon? How could they laugh? How could they eat? How? Then two bowls dropped onto the table and Bob the cannibal slid into the bench across from us. This close to him, I could make out his tattoos. They were writing I did not recognize, but the symbols were jammed so closely together legibility was impossible regardless. He was completely bald, and the ink stretched itself over skull, face, chest, and arms. He was tall, his body hard with muscle, his hands massive and calloused. It was easy to imagine those hands wringing my neck, but his eyes were a soft blue and kind. He spoke, his voice low and smooth. Oddly, it reminded me of my mother's chair. Ugly and rotting from the inside, but too comfortable not to sneak a seat whenever she was gone. These are the words the cannibal spoke to us. I have eaten of the flesh of men. I have drank their blood and picked my teeth with their bones. I can tell you the differing consistencies of the brain and the heart, and that the softer meat is to be found on the back of the rib cage. But I will tell you this once, and then never again. The meat in this stew is from several cows Jenna and I slaughtered before we made birth. How do I know you speak truly? Willis asked. The cannibal shrugged. You don't. But what else will you do? We're fast running out of bread. Then he stood and walked away. We watched him go and then looked down at the stew. The stuff smelled wonderful. Spices wrapping themselves around meat and potatoes. He was right. What else were we to do? I looked at the crew eating around me. 
Yes, they were a crude, filthy lot, with dark secrets and a darker future. But I was one of them now. And out here on the endless ocean, what else mattered? Certainly not the meat in my stew. And with that thought, I took a bite and nearly wept at the taste. I looked at Willis and nodded. Shaking, my friend raised his spoon to his lips. But then a call came from the crow's nest. Land ho! Willis dropped the spoon as if it had bit him, and we all ran up on deck. There, off in the distance, was a sliver of land. Last port. The final settled island in the known world. Our journey was about to begin. The Endless Ocean was written and directed by Keenan Ellis. Ambient sound designed by Sword Coast Soundscapes. Check out our other podcast, The Phone Booth, which explores a world in which 99% of every human being on the planet has a superpower. Also, if you like our shows and want to help us make more, please consider becoming a patron at www.patreon.com foolsgallery. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week on The Endless Ocean.